A non-mom happy hour is the podcast that celebrates real-ass human women, whether they use their baby box or not. Hosted by Kelly Nerdzilla Mendenhall and Debbie Jo Nelson, a non-mom happy hour is a safe space to talk about mental health, trauma, disordered eating, surviving, and self-care. We talk about it all while laughing as much as possible, because if you don't laugh, you'll cry. If you like to laugh, feel like you've never quite fit into most lady groups or podcasts because you're not a mom, or are a mom who needs a break from momming for an hour, you should come hang out with us. A non-mom happy hour, bringing healing through laughter and community, streaming basically everywhere you could possibly want to find us. Remember, always be a real-ass human. To check out the podcast, visit anonmomhappyhour.com. And this one's going out to all the ladies. Do you remember when we were kids, there was a toy that was called uh, Keepers Creepers? No. You don't remember? Maybe. That? What was it? I don't really know. <laughs> I re- so when I was a kid, we had all of these VHS tapes that were movies recorded off the TV, and one yeah. of them was Wizard of Oz. Usually, my mom would cut out the commercials, but the the Wizard of Oz tape had the commercials in it. Because your mom got lazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, one of the commercials was for. Jeep- Jeepers? Jeepers. Jeepers. Just Jeepers. Oh, still don't remember what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were like stuffed animals you could hide things in. Oh. I that sounds, sounds, nato- sounds nefarious. Sounds very morbid. Sounds nefarious for children because that's what we had to work with back they then. They were like smiling dinosaurs that you unzipped and shoved things in like... No. Oh. If there's anything that explains our generation, I think it's that toy right there. Yeah, that and Popples. I love Do you mean Popples? Popples. Yes, Popples. Yes, I fucking love Popples. I had a yellow one with hot pink hair. My sister had a purple one with hot pink hair. I had a magenta one with a microphone. Mm, yes. Yeah. I thought it was amazing that you could turn them inside out, shove the tail in the pouch, yep. and then hang it on a doorknob. Yep. That fascinated me. Welcome to Rock Candy. <laughs> <laughs> where simple things just please us yeah i mean again if anything speaks for our generation it's our toys yeah we had some sweet fucking toys we did we are your weekly podcast bringing us sweet treats of stories and tales from the world of music and we're your hosts i'm maggie i'm ashley and this week we are going back a little bit hence why we're talking about old toys yeah Sure. And also, yeah, they have yeah. a song that's Jeepers. that mentions, well, mentions Jeepers, Jeepers, Creepers. Jeepers Creepers. We're talking about Susie and the Banshees. Yes, we are. <laughs> There's no air horn in Susie and the Banshees. None. 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 Not a single. Not a air single horn. air horn to be well, found in their the music. Fuck out of here! What are you doing? I don't know why I listened to that all day. I didn't hear a single air what? horn. <laughs> what are we even here for? Disappointed. <laughs> Disqualified. <laughs> No, I uh, actually, ashamedly enough, I didn't really start getting into Susie and the Banshees till like a couple years ago. Yeah. So when I really decided in my 30s to really hone in on like an 80s goth phase. Yeah. Because I had like my late 90s, early 2000s goth phase, more like the craft. But then as I'm older now, I'm like, I just want to listen to like The Cure and Susie and the Banshees and cry. (laughs) Arguably... You can cry to The Cure, but I feel like it's... Susie and the Banshees is a little bit dancier. Yeah, no, they're definitely a dancey band. Yeah, I would shoegaze dance to Susie and the Banshees. Yeah, it makes me want to go to Goth Night and make fun of all the people there who want to (laughs) fuck. Because that's all you do at Goth Night. That's all you do. It like... Wow, you guys just want to. You fuck don't even real dance. Bad. They don't even play real music. No, they don't really play good goth. Because nobody wants to dance. Everybody just wants to fuck. And it doesn't matter who yeah, you're so fucking. Yeah, so then play the fucking music I want to hear. Because we're we want to dance. I want to shoegaze dance. Play more Susie and the Banshees. 
fucking put Spellbound on and let me fucking dance. I'm going to twirl so hard to Spellbound. Because I feel like I need to wear a lace scarf and twirl around listening to Spellbound. Like if Stevie Nicks was part of Susie and the Banshees. Yeah, like maybe she moonlighted as a backup dancer for Susie and the Banshees. Perfect. That's what I'm imagining. You have, but like when it plays, you're like, I feel like I should just be twirling. That's all. It's that like frantic acoustic guitar that just and then makes the drum. You, like, I have to get up and I have to start twirling like a whirling dervish and <laughs> like a whirling dervish. <laughs> we are not British, <laughs> but that's adorable. Yes, I like it. Yeah, but yeah, no, and I'm excited because I don't know shit. I don't know shit about Susan and the Banshees. I didn't know a whole lot, and let me tell you, there is a lot. Oh, okay. I like didn't even get to put as much in here as I wanted to because there's too much. It would have been a two-parter. Okay. This could easily have been a two-parter, but I am not going to torture you for two weeks. And I think it's good to just get a nice surface base for Susie and Banshees because I feel like most people don't even really know who we're talking about. No, I think they know what she looks like. Yeah. Because she had crazy makeup. It was that quintessential 80s goth makeup. Yeah. And that's what most people know Susie for. Yeah. And to get us through the episode, we are uh, being accompanied by Manor Vice by Night Shift Brewing. It is a mixed fermentation sour ale aged with blueberries and cinnamon. It's basically jam. It's so good, though. It's jam in a it's, can. It's yeasty jam in a can in liquid form. Oh, see what you call it? Yeasty jam? Yeasty jam. I don't like that. No, it's my yeasty jam. Oh, I don't like that at all. <laughs> I'm going to go take a shower. We'll Uh, see you guys next week. Bye. (laughs) But I chose it because it's from Night Shift Brewing. Right. And Night Shift is a song off of Juju. Right. Susie and the Banshees album. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I mean, I think we both agreed that there was definitely a spellbound either beer or brewery. At some point, there once existed a spellbound beer that no longer exists because we are doing this podcast. Yeah, I think a month ago when they heard us talking about who we were going to cover this like, month, oh, they were like, we gotta oh, get we got to get shit all back. this off Destroy it. Burn it all. Burn it all. Uh, I mean, like, we could give this away, but we're not going to. We're just going to burn it. Burn it. Nobody gets burn this. Burn it. Nobody gets this. Yeah. <laughs> and right. if there's any left, then the week after, we'll re-release it. Just to piss them off. That's how popular our podcast is, <laughs> is that the brewers hear it and they're it's like... It's a conspiracy. You it's know, a fucking conspiracy. I've really had my fill of conspiracies <laughs> for the fucking month. If I could just go for the next week without any, I'd be pretty happy. Yeah. Well, without further ado... Yeah. Let's get into it. Make it happen. Okay. Let's go. If you ever thought Susie Sue seemed kind of weird, you're not alone. Okay. And there's a good reason for her uniqueness. Her upbringing was anything but traditional, sometimes dark, sometimes crazy and fun, and sometimes even tragic. But through it all, she grew up with a solid head on her shoulders and a clear vision of who she wanted to be. She was born Susan Janet Ballion on May 27, 1957 in Southwark, England, and was raised in a suburb of London called Chislehurst. (laughs) I don't know why it makes me laugh. Chislehurst. It sounds fake. It sounds like a fake town. Fake town. <laughs> fake news, Chislehurst. Fake, you're fake news. Fake news town. Everybody, you're all actors. You're all crisis actors in Chiseltown. Truman Show. Oh, I can't. It's fucking Truman I Show. I can't. Nope. No more conspiracy theories. She has two older siblings who are 10 years older than her and were born in the Belgian Congo. Why the Belgian Congo? Yeah. Because her father was a bacteriologist (laughs) and milked venom from snakes. And her mother was a bilingual secretary working in the area. That's badass. Right? Also sounds kind of fake, but no, it's true. (laughs) Conspiracies. They moved back to England before Susie was born. And Susie had a pretty restricted and isolated childhood. She had friends but couldn't invite them over because her father was unemployed and a severe alcoholic. Oh, that's... I guess the milk and snakes thing didn't didn't work work out. out so well. No. Not a whole lot of snakes in England to milk. Didn't St. Peter drive all the snakes out of Ireland? out of Ireland. Yes. And that is a different... Like, not continent, but it's just a different... It's island. I don't know why I'm saying island. I mean, maybe the, snake, not, maybe the not snakes the in England anymore. heard him and were like, ooh, oh, I'm going to follow this Oh, guy. I heard the Scott St. Patrick was taking everybody on a lovely vacation. Ooh, sexy. 
I'm going to follow him. (laughs) She never knew if she'd come home to everything being fine or him in a drunken stupor and being verbally out of control. So she never really invited her friends over. That's probably a smart idea. Yeah. Unfortunately. Because of her father's alcoholism, Susie's mother had to pick up his slack. Not only did she have to work to support the family, but she became the handyman of the house, doing typically male jobs like fixing and pl- fixing the plumbing and doing yard work. Susie's mother basically raised her on her own. Susie recalls not liking people very much from a young age. She kept to herself a lot and preferred it when she was left alone, which was often since her mother worked and her older siblings were off living their own lives. I was going to say, 10 years is a gap. Yeah, that's a big gap. Yeah. She loved to pretend she was someone else, living anywhere else than the god-awful suburbs of Chislehurst she hated so much. When she was a child, she often pretended she was Betty Davis, gliding down the stairs in her mom's stilettos with a white pencil in her mouth like a cigarette. Oh, that's adorable. <laughs> and if you think about it, like... Her look kind of evokes the same kind of um, sophisticated. Yeah. And like long, sinewy kind of almost the silent film star kind of look. So it makes sense that Betty Davis would be a style inspiration for her. Yeah. Except more dark, I guess. Yeah. Like Betty Davis goes goth. Yeah. There you go. Cool. I like it. She created this imaginary protective world for herself that allowed her to escape her own reality and prevented others from getting close to her. It wasn't just her relationship with her parents that did that. When she was nine years old, she and a friend were sexually assaulted by a stranger at a candy shop. Are you shitting me? Yeah. Are you fucking shitting me? Yeah, we're on a fucking streak here. (laughs) Every damn time. I want a story. I want one story. Just Where once. a woman is not sexually assaulted. Can I get one? Oh, no, I can't because women are always sexually fucking assaulted. Cool. Yeah. Cool story. Stop it. <laughs> Just also stop touching children. Can Please. Just stop Knock touching it off. children. The next person who touches the child, I'm punching them in the face. <laughs> I will go to wherever they are. I'll find them. I'll be like, I'll- Fucking punch! I would them. like to have a a visit with with this inmate, and then I'm gonna punch him in the face. <laughs> I don't even give a shit if that gets me in jail. Worth it. I feel like everybody in the jail will probably be like, "Yeah, yeah, good for you." Yeah. Yep. Yeah. At first, she was too young to realize she was assaulted, but her friend confided in her parents, and the friend's parents called the cops. Oh, jeez, that's so fucking young. Yeah, nine. To be like in like, store. Fuck, god damn it. <laughs> really, guy? Did they fucking find him? Tell me the story. I need to hear more. Well, Susie's parents weren't so concerned. The whole incident was mm. virtually ignored, which had a massively damaging effect on young, young Susie. Men were mostly seen as a threat after that, and adults were not to be trusted for anything. These all make sense. Yeah. It also solidified her disdain for her father, pushing her father farther away from her. Well, her father sounds like garbage, so... Yeah. I mean, when your nine-year-old daughter is sexually assaulted and you don't give a shit... Because you're too drunk to give a shit. Yeah, Mm -hmm. fuck you. Yeah, fuck you. Fuck off. Fuck off. We're done. We're done here. Yeah. Fuck off the side of the earth. I don't care. Yep. But her father actually passed away when she was only 14, dying from cirrhosis of the liver from years of heavy drinking. You don't say! But you know what? Okay. All right. That's fine with me. Yeah. She felt so guilty because of his death that her own health took a severe downturn in the years after. Oh. She lost a bunch of weight and was in pain, but she didn't really know why. And she finally was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Oh, Jesus Christ. At 14, 15? She was like 15. That's yeah. so young. She had surgery in mid-1972 oh. when she was only about 15. Oh, my God. While she was in the hospital recovering, she happened to see David Bowie on top of the pops. Oh, that's a good thing. It was at this point she realized she didn't have she didn't have to be like everybody else. That being weird and different was something to be celebrated. God, I love you, David Bowie. Right? God damn you God for being so perfect. It. Why you gotta do this? Inspiring people, you piece of shit. God, why do you gotta be gone? <laughs> <laughs> After she recovered from her surgery, she started attending shows with her sister, who would also take her to gay discos in London. That sounds delightful. Right? She loved it. and Wait. Lo- did she take her to a gay bar? Gay bar! Gay bar! <laughs> oh, okay, good. Yeah. 
That was nice. <laughs> the face of her. Well, she loved it and loved that being surrounded by gay men meant they weren't a threat to her. Y'all. These nights on the town helped her gain confidence in herself and also thumb her nose at society. She already despised the suburb she grew up with she grew up in so why not quit school change your name to Susie sue and dress like a crazy person too yeah oh that rhymes yeah look at you I regular fucking that. dr seuss over here soon enough she became a fearless teenager and she lived for making people's heads turn for example one night she went out in chiselhurst dressed in a 50 style dress in stilettos and walked her friend on a leash like a dog. Oh my god, what? They walked into a wine bar where Susie approached a waitress and said, I'll have a vodka and orange and a bowl of water for my dog. Oh my god. They got kicked out. The the dressing weird and walking your friend on a leash thing? Yeah. I've done that in high oh, school. Yeah. Like 100%. That's like, that's like a rite of passage when for... you're like a goth kid in high school. Yeah. You... <laughs> walking your friend on a leash dressed really weird. Yeah. That's a Rite of passage yeah. for all goth kids. Especially if, like, you have any article of clothing with a D-ring on it, or oh. you wear a bondage collar. Oh, yeah. You have to. Yup. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, that's, I a, didn't realize that's the, a duh. I didn't realize this originated with Susie, though, and I feel really good about that now. <laughs> Style was always incredibly important to young Susie. She understood that she could have an effect on others just with the clothes she was wearing. She loved seeing the shock in people's faces when they saw the experimental shit she was wearing, which included costumes she'd rent on weekends to wear to shows. Nice. And Susie got a lot of inspiration from the Sex Pistols, who at this point were still pretty fledgling. They performed at a local college one night, and while Susie didn't attend the show, her friend's enthusiasm over the music and their lead singer, Johnny Rotten, was enough to get her to check them out when they rolled back into town. I mean, all right. (laughs) (laughs) I have feelings on the Sex Pistols, and... (sighs) But I'm sure at the time they were like, holy shit, especially for somebody like Susie who feels really... Out of place, they probably yeah. felt so refreshing. To they her. were truly something completely different and epitomized the frustration that teenagers in London were feeling at the time. Right. Because, you know, they wanted to be creative and abrasive and, you know, ruffle feathers like nobody ever saw before. And the Sex Pistols kind of epitomized that, especially before. They became really big. Yeah. Early Sex Pistols. All right. You know what? I'm okay. I'm fine with Sex Pistols. I've turned myself around a little bit right now. I still have problems, but I'm relatively okay with early Sex Pistols. It's once Nevermind the Bollocks came out. Yeah. I'm like, nope, I'm done. All right. Throwing my papers up. She got her chance to see the band live in February 1976 and brought along her friend Stephen Severin. She and Steve had met the year before at a Roxy Music concert, which was ironic considering neither one of them really liked glam rock. They Hmm. struck up a friendship fueled by their mutual love of the Sex Pistols and causing general mayhem. The pair met the band after the show and decided to follow them around for a bit. Soon enough, they both found themselves to be part of the Bromley Contingent, which was a group of weirdo teenagers that loved the Sex Pistols. The group contained several unknown at the time musicians, including Adam Ant and Billy Idol. Oh! As well as fashion designer icon Vivian Westwood. Oh, that sounds like a fun group of people! Right? I want to go there! Being with, like, young Susie and young Billy Idol and yeah. young Adam Ant and yeah. young Sex Pistols. Yeah. And wreaking havoc in London and dressing like crazy people and yeah. just having the time of your fucking life. Yeah. That'd that sounds like wonders. I'm okay and with I want that. it. Susie and Steve even followed the band to France in September 76, where Susie ran into trouble for what she was wearing and probably not for the first time. Right. But this time she was beaten for what she was wearing. Whoa, what? Which was a cupless bra and a swastika printed armband. Ooh. While the bra is something no one should fuck with her for, I can't really condone the swastika armband. No. But it was a different time. But also, don't ever wear Nazi symbols. Yeah. I mean, the, it was a different time. And I think that was also a period where you do shocking bullshit to 
piss right. people off, but you're still young and fledgling, so you don't understand. Like, I remember yeah. after Columbine, I knew a lot of people who wore so trench coats. So many people started wearing fucking trench coats, and it's like, dude, that's in poor taste. Yeah, but like, when you're 15, 16... <laughs> you think it's or cool. Or even if you're like 19, 20, you still think it's like, oh, yeah. I'm fucking showing the status quo, go yeah. fuck yourself. I'm showing and all like, these adults. Then you hit 30, and you're like, that was in poor taste, and I should not have done that. Yes. there, There is... Some things in particular where I'm like, I should never have done that. Right. I know better now, but also I am very embarrassed for my 17-year-old self. I'm going to say she probably did it. And anybody else in that group probably did it just to be like, oh, look how edgy I am wearing a swastika. Yeah, very much. And I don't think that it had, like, I think it's taken such a deep turn now. Like, now you wouldn't do it. And she's even written songs dedicated to... um. Like anti-Nazi artists, oh, later all in right, all right. in their career. So, so she's totally so backtracked. One hundred percent was just for shock value. Okay. That's it. Yeah, she has redeemed herself. Yeah, Nazi-inspired attire aside, Susie was well known already in the London club scene for her outrageous style. She liked to incorporate bondage and fetish gear and gothic elements to her clothing, wearing mostly black clothes and wildly glam makeup. Her Egyptian-inspired eye makeup and bold red lipstick would become her trademark even before she and Steve would start their band. Getting to that band thing. Sex Pistols manager Malcolm McLaren had organized the 100 Club Punk Festival, but one of the bands in the lineup pulled out at the last minute. Heh, <laughs> giggity. <laughs> <laughs> Susie could... <laughs> Stupid! <laughs> Dick jokes. You won't find that song behind the music. <laughs> behind the music, but with dick jokes. Oh, that's, yeah. yeah there that's we it. go. Yeah, I need, that, that's I the need baby. to change our profile. <laughs> Susie convinced Steve that they should replace the band that left, even though they didn't even have a band or instruments or any idea how to play them. Oh my God. Okay. But two days later, on September 20th, 1976, they were playing the festival. What? They borrowed two musicians to fill out the band. Okay. Marco Peroni played guitar, and on drums was John Simon Ritchie, or as most of us know him, Sid Vicious. Simon Ferocious, if you're Simon Ferocious. (laughs) You're Simon Ferocious or something. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't really quite like that. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck you, Sid Vicious. Their entire set was a 20-minute recitation of the Lord's Prayer, backed by screaming guitars, feedback, and Sid Vicious's rabid drumming. What? Yeah. They didn't know how to play their instruments, so they just, like, got feedback from plucking the guitar, and they went with it. That is the weirdest fucking thing I've ever heard of. But that's what they wanted. All right. (laughs) Oh, my God. They broke up after that first gig, but they- Were they ever really together? Not really. Okay. (laughs) But they continued to hang around with the Pistols. Susie appeared on ITV's Today Show with the band and a few of their friends, and the story behind this TV appearance is pretty amusing. For starters, the Sex Pistols weren't even supposed to be on this show. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a wholesome good morning show. It's one of those typical English 70s talk shows. Yeah. Yeah. I I just can't imagine Sex Pistols on there, but all right. Yeah. Just imagine any footage you've ever seen of the Beatles being on, like, an English talk show, just sitting in the chairs with the host to the side, them asking awkward questions, and it's just nobody... And they're all just just taking the piss out of the answers. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this was. But, like... To the 10th level, because the Sex Pistols. Because it's the Sex Pistols. It's the four Sex Pistols sitting down and also, like, four of their friends standing behind them, including Susie, who had short bleach blonde hair and a star in black drawn on her eye. And then on the, like, all all the way on the other side of her was another kid with a swastika armband (laughs) on live English TV in 1976 All right, guys, that's twice. Yeah. (laughs) 
Twice. Can't... Twice now. Well, Come on. Okay. So yeah, Sex Pistols weren't even supposed to be on the show. In fact, it was Queen that was booked for this slot. Oh. But Freddie had developed such a severe toothache that the notoriously dentist-phobic frontman canceled their appearance and went to have his tooth looked at. Oh, okay. Yeah. Queen's record label EMI was desperate for a replacement, so they offered up the pistols. Yep. This resulted in a two-minute downward spiral of swear <laughs> words after the host, Bill Grundy, made weird advances towards Susie, and the rest of the pistols started calling him a dirty fucker and a fucking rotter. They should have called him Bill Grundle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they had that word at that time. Well, now we know what we could call him. Well, now he's, he's Bill Grundle. He's Bill Grundle. <laughs> The show quickly went to commercial, and the entire group was ushered into the green room. By now, hundreds of people were calling in with complaints, which were all being diverted to the green room phones. The sex pistols oh, and friends were no. left alone in a room with phones no. ringing off the hook, what? people waiting angrily to yell about how offended oh, no. they were by the musicians. What are you doing? So what do they what do? What are you doing, BCC? I imagine so, it's BCC. BBC? You, that's B- it's whatever. BBC. <laughs> <laughs> We're not British. <laughs> so what does the band and their friends do? They would never pick up those phones. Oh, never. Never. That's never. not going to happen. Except they answered the oh, phones God. and screamed oh, back at them. Oh, my God. But also, I'm kind of in love with this. <laughs> and this was before the Sex Pistols were the Sex Pistols. So I'm okay with it. Yeah, this is fun. I don't hate you guys yet. It's pretty funny. And it's kind of funny because... Doing the research for this, especially when I watched this clip and I started really reading about this particular punk scene in England, it's amazingly progressive and amazingly gender equal Hmm. because you had a lot of female musicians in this scene and everybody was very supportive of them, including the Sex Pistols. Like, they got pissed off at this host because he made a weird advance at Susie, and they immediately came to her defense. Interesting. She was like, well, fuck this guy, whatever, I don't care. But they were still like, what the fuck is your problem? You know? You're a a dirty old man. They literally called him a dirty old man man. on live TV. And um, there was another band called The Slits that was an all-female punk group and they were so supportive of them because they thought they were amazing musicians. Right. And it's it's pretty fantastic. And it's also kind of weird because you had this very uh, gender equal scene happening in London. But in New York, you oh, yeah. had the most misogynistic garbage happening right. in the punk scene there. And, like, and they wouldn't take Blondie seriously because there's a female lead. Right. And like you had to have... Wendy Williams come into the scene and be so outrageous. Like, yeah, they would not have given her even half her credit if she right. was sorry. And honestly... And she still had to fight for any show that she got, too. Right. And she even had, like, Gene Simmons backing her up. Yeah. And that's some bullshit. That's some bullshit. Fuck you, America. What are we doing? So, I will certainly give that to the Sex yeah. Pistols. No, you know what? Good form. Good for you. Happy for you. Proud of you. Proud of you. (laughs) As Susie made a name for herself in her scene, people just couldn't forget that that first show she and Steven played and kept bugging the band to get back together. And they're probably like, we're not Sid Vicious. Come on, guys. They caved, and two months after their first gig in early 1977, Susie and Steven got back together with a new guitarist, Peter Fenton, and a new drummer, Kenny Morris. Peter Fenton wasn't the right fit for the band, though, and they replaced him with John McKee in July. Okay. They adopted the name Susie and the Banshees after the Vincent Price movie Cry of the Banshee. Oh, that that's on brand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. As Susie and the Banshees, they continued to play shows around London, and things started happening for the band pretty quickly. Their shows frequently sold out, and in November 77, they appeared on the TV show So It Goes then recorded a John Peel session for BBC Radio and appeared on the cover of Sounds Magazine in December. All of this without having a record deal or even an album recorded. Okay. DIY to the limit. Seriously. And working. Yeah. Wow. 
but they were having a hard time finding a record label. Despite being pretty successful in their scene, record labels weren't clamoring to sign them. On top of that, they wanted complete control over their material, which a lot of labels didn't like. Right. Of course. Yeah. Finding a label that was going to give you the freedom to do what you wanted. Good luck. Fucking diamond in the rough (laughs) in that business. A friend of theirs even started a graffiti campaign, spray painting record label buildings with the phrase, sign the banshees, do it now. Oh, shit. (laughs) Before long, Polydor Records came a knockin'. You might remember Polydor Records from signing Blue Angel in our Cindy Lauper episode. That's right. The Banshees signed a deal with the label in June 1978 and quickly got into the studio to record their very first album. Yeah, finally. The Scream was released on November 13th, 1978 to critical acclaim and immediate success, topping the charts in the UK at number 12. Huh, it's like letting them do their own thing worked out. Yeah, huh. it usually does. Huh, Because like, they know what they're fucking doing. Weird. Like, don't sign a fucking band if you don't think what they're already doing works. Right. It's like entering into a relationship with a terrible dude saying, I'm going to change him. Yes. It doesn't work. Doesn't work. You're never going to change him. You're not going to change him. Yeah. Just going to end up hooked on cocaine. (laughs) I mean, I think that's what most bands do anyway. Yeah, pretty much. Preceding the album was the single Hong Kong Garden, which landed in the top 10 of the UK singles chart and became one of the, the very first post-punk hits. And it's I feel like it's also one of those songs that is in so many 80s movies. Yeah, it's but very in, much in the background. You don't hear it. Yeah, but you never really know who it's by right? if you're not a serious fan. Yeah, when I was listening through their discography and I heard them, I'm like, I do know the song. Mm-hmm. The band would release nearly an album a year for the next 17 years. Whoa, what? Yeah. I didn't notice that. Their next album called Join Hands was released in 1979, and again, the critics and fans loved it. Whereas The Scream was more influenced by their punk roots, Join Hands took on a much darker tone with elements of goth punk and new wave that they'd become known for later in later years. Mm, love me some of that goth new wave. They booked their own headlining tour with The Cure as their support, which started in September 1979. Oh, I guess. Yeah. They came out just, just before The Cure came out. They were basically peers. But I bet, but I bet Robert and Susie shared a lot of hair tips. Robert actually got his look from Susie. I think, yeah. I feel like I did read that somewhere. He asked to borrow her lipstick one That's evening it. at a show yeah. and went to the men's room and when he came out he had like lipstick all over his face <laughs> she was like i really wish he would use a mirror when he puts his lipstick on <laughs> like why are you gonna go to the bathroom to put your lipstick on when if you're, you're just gonna, gonna <laughs> you're just gonna fuck it up just do it right there yeah seriously if you're not actually even gonna look at yourself yeah just fucking do it right there yeah and for a long time they had the same wig oh like, yeah it was the same haircut oh yeah his Definitely. was a little bit messier but Definitely. Like, she definitely took a little bit better care of hers. Yeah. <laughs> like, you could tell at the end of the night, she's like, oh, I'm going to take this off and, like, put it on a nice mannequin, and he would just throw it over to the side. Yeah. I want to say hers was a wig, but I'm not entirely sure. I'm sure it's probably usually her hair. Yeah. I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't born yet. We don't know. Yeah. So they booked this tour, but the tour seemed to be doomed from the beginning. But, like, I really want to see this tour now. <laughs> <laughs> Only a few dates into the tour... On the same day Join Hands was released, an argument broke out between the band members at an in-store record signing in Aberdeen, Scotland, Hmm. causing John McKee and Kenny Morris to storm off and quit the band. Oh no! What? The fight started as soon as the band walked into the record shop. The shop was playing Join Hands, but John ripped it off the record player and replaced it with an album by The Slits. Tensions during the recording of Join Hands had been really high, with band members clashing with each other over musical direction, and John feeling like most of the songs he'd written were dismissed as not good enough. So understandably, he didn't really want to hear the album while signing stuff for fans. Then the shop ran out of records, so their manager, Neil Stevenson, brought in a bunch of promotional copies he had in his car for the shop to sell. This angered John because of some kind of miscommunication, and he threw a fit. And Susie, already pissed off at him for changing the music, responded by punching him. (gasps) Okay. (laughs) She was a fucking badass. Oh, my God. 
Her- Taking no shit. Yeah. She- shit, I want to go, I want to go punch the next sexual assaulter in the face with her. <laughs> yeah, right? This was enough for both John and Kenny, who turned heel and left the signing with no intentions of coming back, but never informed their f- now former bandmates of that. They, oh my god. They literally went on the run because they were terrified of Susie. Yeah. She that's was a fair. badass that would beat the fucking shit out of that's you. That's fair. And did not care. Yeah. I'm fine with that. Like, I get it. Yep. The man she still had shows to do, but now half their band was gone. They weren't giving up, though. Susie and Steve took the stage that same night anyway and announced that their two bandmates were gone. And if anyone found them, they should beat the shit out of them. Oh my god. That's... <laughs> She that. even did like an interview with somebody and told her fans that were listening that they should kill them if they find them. Whoa. Yeah. She was fucking pissed. Yeah. I don't blame her. Super pissed. Super pissed. <laughs> the Cure then came on stage to save them from having to play with only half a band. Oh. But later, Robert Smith invited, Su- invited Susie and Steve back on stage to play some Banshee songs. For the rest of the tour, Robert Smith bil- filled in for the Banshees on guitar, while a new drummer named Budgie, formerly of the Slits, became a permanent me- member of the band. Are you laughing at Budgie? Budgies are parakeets in England. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, that's what they that's call cute. parakeets in England. He they call them Budgies. Looks, he kind of looks like a parakeet. Yeah. That's probably why they call him Budgie. <laughs> that's funny. Budgie! I love it. Aww. Budgies. Oh. After the tour was over and Robert Smith shoegaze shuffle his way back to the cure, <laughs> the Banshees hired a new guitarist, John McYuck. Yep. I, I think I said his Bless name. Bless right. you. <laughs> yep. With this new lineup, they went back into the studio to record a new album, but this time they decided to do things differently. Very, very differently. They called their new album Kaleidoscope because they wanted to represent a variety of sounds. Almost like every song was sonically completely different from the other. What resulted was an album the likes of which no one had ever heard before. It wasn't punk. It wasn't post-punk. It was more dark, introspective, and synth-heavy, and used production techniques no one had heard before. Yeah. Yeah. When I remember, like, when the songs from that, because I just kind of listened to them on shuffle, and when songs from that album would come up, I felt it was very different. Yes. Than the earlier stuff, for sure. Their it earlier, felt very 80s. They were still trying to be pretty uh, post-punk. Right. In their first uh, couple albums. But Kaleidoscope was where the tables kind of turned a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they went a little more new wave. Yes. With their their sound. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's definitely the transition of, like, Joy Division to New Order. Yeah. And, like, for all intents and purposes, it was the first new wave gothic album. Oh, okay. I think. Cool. I'm fine with that. I mean, it's still a good album, but you can definitely tell a difference. Yeah. Once again, everyone lost their minds over the album. Critics praised it for his innovation, and fans loved it because it was still the Banshees, but even better. Kaleidoscope went to number five in the UK and allowed the band to embark on another huge tour in 1980, this time playing shows in the United States for the first time ever. Ooh. They kept the momentum going with their next album, Juju, released in 1981. Juju, I think, is a landmark album for goth rock. Okay. 100%. All right. This, along with Pornography by The Cure that came out in 1982, mm. were defining albums of the genre. The album took on a darker tone than previous releases, moving away from the electronic sounds of Kaleidoscope and going for a more guitar-driven, broody, and darkly melodic sound. Right. I like how they went from kind of this post-punk to bright synth wave to then just kind of like nah but like fuck this we're brooding again but it all makes sense mm. like the the progression of it makes complete sense to me okay. and it makes me it makes me think that they can do so much within a certain kind of tight genre yeah and that's kind of awesome and i think a lot of that has to do with um steve severin's creative genius genius <laughs> i think that's a that a lot of that is him okay and also budgie is a really fucking great drummer so Fuck yeah budgie yeah budgie props to budgie <laughs> during the recording of juju Susie and budgie started a drum and voice side project called the creatures it started when steve and john took a break from recording and Susie and budgie created the song but not them with just Budgie's drums and Susie's voice. Oh. They liked it enough to write four more songs to accompany it and liked each other enough 
to secretly become a couple at the same time. Yeah. Get it. <laughs> get it, Budgie. Yeah. <laughs> Budgie's getting it in. <laughs> All right. The Banshees went out on a successful tour to support Juju, but were right back in the studio afterwards to record a new album. Damn. Yeah, they mean, didn't fucking stop. You know, it, it's just same same story for like the 70s and 80s. It's like album tour, album tour, Every album year. tour, album Every tour. Year. That's how you made your money. And that's why they did so much cocaine. Yeah. 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 Speaking of. <laughs> oh, speaking of cocaine. A Kiss in the Dream House was their fifth album in a row to chart highly in the UK and garner critical acclaim. The recording, however, wasn't exactly a cakewalk. Mmm, cake. Mm. Mm. It was their most experimental album to date, and a lot of that could be attributed to their own experiments with drugs. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The band knew they had a lot of work to do, so Coke and alcohol were ever-present to help them avoid sleep and get as much done as possible during their 14-hour work sessions. What? Yeah. Cocaine and alcohol? They took they took the Fleetwood Mac route yeah. with this. That Coke and cognac? Yep. Mm. Yep. That's my diet. <laughs> <laughs> While the boys experimented with speed, Susie turned to LSD to find her inspiration. Honestly? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. She wrote most of her lyrics while tripping on acid, which caused her to recede back to her childhood and oh. work through a lot of issues from back then, which came out in her lyrics. Which might arguably be a good thing to work through From what shit? I gather, it's it was a good thing. Like, it made her want to, like, call her mom and tell her mom she's like wonderful and and thank her for everything that she did growing up and wow she's a better person than i am because i would have called my mom like you fucking suck and you <laughs> fucked me up like well, she's a better person i'm than sure I am. she would have done that with, with her dad but her dad was gone that's so. true the tour for a kiss in the dream house would be like most banshees tours a mess during some gigs in Scandinavia, after years of pushing her voice to the limit, she lost her voice completely. Oh, shit. They had to cancel the rest of their tour dates, and Susie was forced to rest her voice for at least a month. Her vocal issues never really went away, and she would repeatedly face them head on. I couldn't find out many details about what exactly was wrong with her voice. She was probably doing a bad technique. Doing a bad technique, smoking like a fucking chimney... Doing drugs, drinking, and relentless touring, and singing, like, pushing her voice to the limit every fucking day. Yeah, she does, um, her style of singing, I love it, and I try to dabble in it sometimes, but it's very difficult. It's like a shout singing, almost, like a speak singing. Yeah. In a way. Um, and you're really using the range of your voice where it's your speaking voice, almost, but you're singing with it. And that is a very rough way to continuously sing. And I feel like she does a lot of hard transitions Mm -hmm. from just, from her notes. Like, she'll go from, you know, a note she can hit very well to a really high note, like, with nothing, with no gradual notes in between. Right. And I don't think that's very good for your voice. You just, you have to have a good technique. And the thing is, I mean... And she's not trained right i respect because she sounds beautiful without being trained but at the same time you get to a certain point if you're going to be a professional singer you need you need a teacher Mm -hmm. you need at least just a coach who's going to help you when your voice blows out right and i don't think she did that she did not take the cindy lopper tactic yes at all or the most vocalists at this point like if you're a vocalist you're gonna be touring get yourself a fucking coach right do it even if you think you're just a punk singer just do it. Just do it. You are hurting your voice, I promise you. Yeah. Um, I know she's had surgery on her vocal cords at least once. Oh, Jesus. And her range dropped significantly in the mid-90s. Well, at that point, she's what, in her 40s? In the mid-90s? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, my voice has dropped in my mid-30s, so. Yeah. Yeah, once you start to hit your 30s, you notice you'll probably drop a few notes, and then by your mid-40s, you drop probably a whole fucking octave. Yeah. Yeah, women's voices get very deep as they get older. So that 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 at least makes sense. Hopefully mine will get sexier as I get older. I know. I'm going to start smoking cigarettes so I can get that sexy smoke of voice. Yeah. I just have a frog voice, and I hate it. You do have a frog voice. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> just like a weird nerd voice. I have a weird nerd no, voice. I have a weird nerd uh, voice. Like, I'm fine with having a weird nerd voice. I think you have a normal lady voice. 
I feel like I sound like I just drank a whole glass of milk and now I have like <laughs> gross milk throat all oh, the but all oh, the time gross. and I don't drink milk. Gross. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, I want to throw up. Right? <laughs> I hate milk. Milk's I disgusting. fucking hate milk. That's so gross. A whole <laughs> glass. No. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, we digress. The band was to face even more setbacks later. Upon returning from a promotional trip to Spain, John McGiock. I can't I love pronounce it. his name. It's like John McGiock. It's 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 spelled McGioch. 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 It's me. It's. it's McYuck. McYuck. Oh, yeah. okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. It's, I'm picking up what It's you're very down. Gaelic, and I suck at Ooh. pronouncing Gaelic words. Man, anyone who's Irish listening to us right now, sorry. Sorry. I'm trying. He had been dealing with alcoholism for years, and that, along with the stress of touring, had finally caught up with him. Before their show in Madrid, he had drank too much and took Valium. Oh, no. Rendering him virtually useless on stage. The band started playing Arabian Nights, but he started playing Spellbound. He oh, basically no. had a nervous breakdown and then collapsed on stage. <gasps> That's horrifying. Yeah. He went to an alcoholics program upon returning home, but it was obviously obviously wasn't getting sober since Steve found him at a bar with some people from the halfway house he was staying at. Uh, so the band made the decision to fire him. Oof. Robert Smith again accepted an invitation from Steve to rejoin the band in November 1982. Because he's a fucking champ of a friend. Yeah. His reaction was, quote, once a banshee, always a banshee. Oh my god, Robert Smith's ride or die! <laughs> he is a oh ride or die. Oh my god, I love him! <laughs> But by this time, the band members were working on separate side projects. Susie and Budgie recorded a full-length album as The Creatures, and Steve and Robert started a group called The Glove. Just <laughs> kind of weird, but okay. Just, just, sure. I'm yeah, sure there's a story there. I oh, just I'm don't sure. know it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the biggest break between albums the band had since releasing The Scream in 1978. They released an album a year up through A Kiss in the Dream House, but it would be two years before they dropped a new album. In the meantime, besides their respective side projects, they released a cover of Dear Prudence by the Beatles. Which is lovely. In 1983, it was a very good cover. Yeah, it's a it, that is a goddamn champ of a cover. It is. Yeah. It's delightfully Susie and the Banshees, but... Still true to the original. Yes. Yeah. Not a lot of covers... Uh, Especially Beatles covers. Yeah, they don't accomplish that. Yeah, no. It was recorded at the request of Robert Smith, who wanted something recorded to document his time in the band. Oh! He must have had the Midas touch because the single went to number three in the UK charts, becoming their biggest hit. Dear Prudence ended up being included on their next album, Hyena, released in 1984. But before the album was released, Robert decided to leave the band. There was a lot of derision amongst fans about him joining in the first place. People were kind of annoyed that the band sacked John McGiock <laughs> only a week into his recovery period. And Robert said himself that he probably only returned to the Banshees because shit wasn't great with the cure at the time. Right. And the Banshees would have been a nice escape from that. But the pressure of being in two super popular bands at the time was at the same time was too much for him, and he chose to go back to the cure. This is 83, 82? Yeah, it was like 82, 83. Yeah, okay. So, like, Disintegration's 86, right? Sure. Because, like, that not that, like... I mean, The Cure had albums before that. Like, they had songs. But I feel like Disintegration was, like, the one that made The Cure, like, oh, that's the fucking Cure. Yeah, I know Pornography came out in 1982. Okay. So he's, like... They are on the precipice of blowing, blowing up, up themselves. Yeah. Like, they're popular, but they're also, like, probably on the precipice of becoming the fucking cure. And they prob they're probably popular in the UK. Oh, but, I'm um, sure. Yeah, I, I guess US I meant, like, I'm point. sure in England, Europe, they're probably very popular. Yeah. But once you get big in the US, like, that's it. Yeah. And, like, yeah, he needs to pick one or the other. He's going to pick his own band, which good for He's him. He's going to pick his band that's about to blow up and i'm sure he knows they're about and to he blow gets up. a little bit more i think he gets a little bit more creative mm -hmm. say in the cure and more money gotta get that money but he's still ride or die like he's, i'm not taking away his ride or die status he has saved their asses twice now yeah. so and i, I here's the thing i doubt Susie could even like hold that against him yeah no yeah i don't think any of them did no, i'm sure once again they were out a guitarist 
They recruited John Valentine Carruthers to replace departed Robert Smith and immediately released the Thorn EP, wherein they worked songs, reworked songs from their own repertoire with string sections. They continued the focus on strings in their next album, Tinderbox, released in 1986. They followed that up with the lighter and funner covers album, Through the Looking Glass. Mm -hmm. But it was their next album, Peep Show, that would finally put them on the map in America. During their break between albums, the band fired John Valentine Carruthers, saying they didn't feel like he was a good fit for the band. Do you see a pattern? They don't like guitarists? They don't like their guitarists. Except for Robert Smith. Yeah, he keeps coming back. But he, he's the only one that keeps leaving on his own. Right. Because he knows. I will give their various guitarists credit. Like, John McGeoch was, <laughs> was a very, um, he was a very important part of the band. Oh, yeah. He really helped define their sound and push them into a creative space that they probably wouldn't have gotten to if he wasn't there. Well, he was around for some really influential albums. Yeah, he was around He was around for Juju, which mm-hmm. I think was very influential, and Spellbound yeah. is an amazing song. The yeah. guitar on that song is him. Yeah, and of course. And his work with the acoustic guitar on that album and uh, Mojo, I think. I think it was Mojo. I can't remember. They were, like, you, you can't replace that. It was... right. It's something you didn't really hear in post punk. You didn't. You didn't hear an acoustic guitar in post punk. No, not at all. No, that was unheard was of. All so for him to bring an element like that in was crazy and creative and really set them apart. Right. So I'm going to give it to all their various guitarists. <laughs> Changing guitarists really changed their sound in a good way. Right. I think. Yeah, I mean, it helps keep them diverse and it keeps them going because it sounds like and it brings... some of their guitarists had problems that they couldn't work through. <laughs> right. And it brings fresh new ideas when it's a point where you could potentially get stagnant. Right. It it kind of brings new um, eyes into it, which I think, and new ears. New ears. Mostly the ears. They ended up replacing John with two musicians. Oh. Guitarist John Klein. There's a lot of Johns. Yeah, we, that's like the fourth John. Yeah, there's so many fucking Jesus Johns. Jesus Christ. <laughs> hey, hey, stop naming your kids John. Yeah, it's kind of overdone at We're this do- point. Guys, it's We're done. We're done with John. Like, we yeah. can take a 10-year break from Johns, and there will still be too many Johns. Too many Johns. So they replaced him with John Klein and multi-instrumentalist Martin McCarrick. As a quintet... The band released Peep Show in 1988 and finally broke through the American market with singles like Peekaboo and The Last Beat of My Heart, which are amazing songs. Yeah, because Peekaboo is the one of Jeepers Creepers. Yes. That's it. And that's why we talked about Jeepers Creepers. I just like how she sings the chorus. Peekaboo. That's great. (laughs) Yes. It was the single Kiss Them For Me from their next album, Superstition, that really caught people's attention across the pond. I totally forgot about this song. And when I heard it, I was like, yeah, I loved this song. Superstition was their 10th studio album, released in 1991, and gave the band their first Billboard hit, peaking at number 65. Although the album was successful and was once again well-received by all, the band wasn't very happy with it. It was produced by Stephen Haig, who is known for working with New Order, and he brought in a new production style that included working with computers. I could 100% see this, actually. Yeah. This seemed like a great idea, but this new concept of creating music with computers didn't jive well with a band with punk roots. You know what it is? It sounds too clean. Exactly. That is exactly why they didn't like it. The music wasn't raw and didn't have that untidy edge anymore. Right. Everything was pristine and pitch perfect, and that wasn't the band's style. And you can hear it. Like, I love Kiss Them for me, but you can hear that in that song. Yeah. I was like, I never fucking knew this was Susie and the Banshees it because it so doesn't different. sound like them. Yeah. But everyone else seemed to like it, and because of its success, the band became the second headliners for the inaugural Lollapalooza tour. They must have gotten the bug for festivals after that because they abandoned their new album in the middle of recording it to play, oh, the, to play the festival circuit. All right. Eventually, they finished it with the help of Velvet Underground's John Cale and released it in January 1995. Nice. Although it was w- well received, Susie and the Banshees were dropped from Polydor only a few what? weeks after its release. G- okay. I don't know why. I have no fucking clue why they were dropped. At this point in the game, I'm not, I stopped questioning why record labels do anything. Yeah. 
pretty much. Because they're assholes. That's that's the basic answer I've come up with at this point. But if you think about it, this is the same time that they dropped Cindy Lauper too, who came out around the same time that they did. Yeah, like because they signed her with Blue in the mid nineties. You have like CDs and tapes are both still around. Like shit's still popping. So yeah, I got nothing. Yeah, I don't know. They're just assholes, pretty much. Compounding that, the band wasn't getting along anymore and tensions were pretty high. Mm. By now, Susie and Budgie had tied the knot, packed up their stuff, and moved. Oh, Susie and Budgie got married! (laughs) They became disillusioned with life in London, sick of fans peering into into their windows in their basement flat. So they moved to a farmhouse in southwest France and began to live a quiet life. They kind of didn't want the famous musician life anymore, but the band persisted, replaced John Klein with former Psychedelic Furs guitarist Knox Chandler, and went on tour to support their new album. I'm like, first of all, can we say, not a John. Not a John. Knox Chandler, a very different name. Very different name. I'm going to say, state the case for more Knoxes, less Johns. (laughs) But it wouldn't last, and in April 1996, after working together for 20 years, everything came to a head and the group disbanded for good. I know. Wait, and this is 96? 96. Damn. But that didn't mean anyone stopped making music. At this point, Susie had been collaborating with other artists for years. She collaborated with the band Suede as well as Morrissey, and after the Banshees disbanded, she went on tour with John Cale and contributed to a Basement Jacks album. Wait. Which Basement Jacks album? Uh, they won a Grammy for it. Must have been Rudy. No. Was it was it Scars? No, it was two words. <laughs> Help. <laughs> oh, fucking. Uh, keep going. I'll think of it. Yeah, it was. I think it was a single. The, the single was, was it Red the, Alert. No, the single was the same name as the album name and they won a Grammy for it. So I don't. I don't All right. Know. This is going to fucking bother me because I never knew that. I'm sorry. I had it written down and then I erased it. <laughs> oh, my God. But she and Budgie continued their Creatures project, releasing Anima Animus in 1999 and their final album, Hi, in 2003, which was praised for its Anglo-Japanese beauty. Is it like, hi or like, hi? Hi, H-A-I exclamation point. Oh, hi. Yeah. Japanese. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. It's not, and it's not like they didn't try to get back together. Susie, Steve Severin, Budgie, and Knox Chandler reunited in 2002 after Universal released the Best of Susie and the Banshees album. They called it the Seven Year Itch Tour since it had been seven years since oh, they released anything. That's a good point. And from that tour, they released a live album and DVD. But Old Runes reopened, and it was pretty clear the band couldn't continue being together. Oh. Everyone went their separate ways, but continued working on their own projects. 2004 was the year that saw Susie transform from a former goth band frontwoman to a solo artist. Ooh. She went out on her own tour performing Banshees and Creature songs. A DVD called Dream Show was released and sold so well that it went to number one in the UK DVD sales charts. Nice. It seemed like a no-brainer that a solo career was imminent. Universal snagged her up and gave her a new record deal with the label W14. She gathered producers and musicians that had worked with a perfect list of artists, including Goldfrap, Robert Plant, and Portishead, oh, which shit. I think makes so much sense. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Because that kind of, those three artists, yeah. put them together, you kind of get Susie a little bit. Yeah. Throw Robert Smith in there. Yeah, honestly, like, you got that showmanship for sure. Yeah. Wow. That make, that's all makes sense. <laughs> all right. She released her album Manta Ray in September 2007 and critics fell in love with it, commending her growth as an artist while still staying true to her sensuality and dark romanticism. However, during the press tour leading up to the album's release, she revealed that she and Budgie had divorced. Oh, Budgie! (laughs) She also alluded to the idea that she wasn't exactly straight, but also not exactly lesbian. So maybe pansexual or something like like that? Bye? Yeah, <laughs> like guys, I'm gonna break the mysticism right now. Bisexualism is real. It's a real thing, guys. You can like both. It's fine. Yeah, it's 2019. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna even say in 27, 
2007, whatever, 2007? 2007. She can say she's you bisexual. You can say you're bisexual by 20. It's tw- fine. 2007. But maybe, she, maybe it was something more than bisexual. I mean, it could I be, know. you're right. It could be pansexual or like omnisexual or I don't know. I don't know. Whatever you do, you, my, you ain't hurting nobody. That's fine. You do you. Yeah. Good for you. Whatever you're attracted to is what you're attracted you to. Touch the butts you want to touch consensually. Have fun. Have fun, kids. Just don't hurt nobody and wear a condom. <laughs> the subsequent tour. <laughs> Here, have some rubbers. Take have some rubbers. Take some rubbers, goddammit. <laughs> the subsequent tour was also a success, and that led to more collaborations. In 2015, she was asked. She was personally asked by Hannibal series creator Brian Fuller to compose a song for the show's season finale. She stated that this was the push she needed to create new music since it had been eight years since Manta Ray, and she was finding it frustrating to gain inspiration to write. So she, ho- she wrote the end song for Hannibal? She wrote a song for the finale of Hannibal. Oh, I wonder if it was that song. Oh it could have been. <gasps> oh, my God. oh my God. There's like so much I didn't know she fucking did. Yeah. I feel like such a scrub. She is an undercover lady. Undercover lady. Undercover lady. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it just, I was like, I just finished that a couple months ago. Hilariously, she also contributed a song to the Showgirl soundtrack. (laughs) And also, actually, a very good song to the Batman Returns soundtrack. Face to face. Oh no, Batman Returns was good. Yeah, we can we can talk about Batman Returns. That's fine. Batman. Yeah, I'm saying Batman Returns okay. is fine, but I, Showgirls. Because for... <laughs> well, you, you were following up from Showgirls, I was like, she's gonna say Batman Forever and or Batman and Robin. For a little bit, I thought it was the same soundtrack that the fucking awful. What is it? Batman Dance by the Prince. The Bat Dance by <laughs> Prince. On. No, that's the original. The Bat Dance is wonderful. Okay. <laughs> no, okay, Maggie. We'll go <laughs> anyway. Anyway. <laughs> but the amount of growth you can witness in this band is amazing. They go from post-punk brats to shoegaze goths to quirky pop aficionados throughout their careers, and we get to witness all of it when listening to their albums. They started out as brash, middle-finger-wielding kids to truly sophisticated musicians making intelligent and unique music, and no one will ever be able to replicate. Nope. And at this point, I believe very recently, Steve Severin said that he and Susie are talking again. People lost their shit and (laughs) thought that meant that they were reuniting. He's like, no. It means exactly what I said. We're just talking. They're just Facebook Chill friends, out. guys. Yeah. Like, We're... once in a while, they'll, like, con- connect on Messenger and be like, how are the kids? Yeah. They're like... How's wi- your garden? They're wishing pe- wishing each other happy, happy birthday, birthday on Facebook. <laughs> uh, Christmas cards, maybe. Like, that's, that's it. Chill out. All right. It's nothing crazy yet, but chill out. But... Don't tell Susie she's an icon or an inspiration to anyone. If there's anything she wants people to take away from her music and her career, it's that you need to be an individual. Don't copy her style or her music. Just do your own thing and own it. And I think the quote that sums up Susie in a nutshell is also a pretty good life motto. Quote, I just want to do what I do and leave me the fuck alone. Slow clap for Susie. Oh my god. That's I just want to do what I do. Leave, Leave me, me the, the fuck, fuck alone. alone. Oh my god. Uh, I need to be more like Susie Sue. No, but that's the thing. She doesn't want oh you to god. do that. No, but like without being like her, I need just the to, attitude. Yes. I need to take that mantra. Yes. Cross stitch it. Put it on my wall. Someone please cross stitch. That quote yeah. for me onto Please. something. I don't even care what it is. Human Just, flesh. It doesn't matter. <laughs> preferably human flesh. Right? But, um, yeah. Yeah. I put that shit on a yeah. pillow. That's that's what I mean. Like, I need to absorb that mantra mm-hmm. of like, do what I want. Leave me the fuck alone. Yep. Oh, my God. Oh, that was like the most perfect way to tie up fucking Women's <laughs> History Month. Yeah. She's like, I've been through shit, but who fucking cares? I'm my own woman. I'm going to do what I want to do. Be your own fucking bitch. Get on your own shit. 
And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Right. And if some dude tries to tell you what you got to do. Punch him in the face. No, grab him by the balls. Oh, that too. And then punch him in the face. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoy that. I'm here for that. I'm here. I'm 100% here for that. And you know that? And you know what? I'm kind of proud of myself for (laughs) gaining a slightly new perspective on the sex pistols. Right? Like, I don't really... I won't I won't write them off as quickly anymore. Yeah. Cause I, Maybe like their last couple years and when they get really bad. Or like, you know, when Sid Vicious started giving Freddie Mercury the business sets, I'm like, and I'm done with you. And also post Sex Pistols Johnny Rotten makes me want to light him on fire. I fucking hate him. I'm sorry. I cannot deal with the I'm forty five and acting like a seventeen year old jerk bullshit. You he grows cool. someday. And he never did. Yeah. I think at this point, maybe he's grown up a little bit, but... But you know what? Like, Susie took her mistakes from her childhood, reversed them. She's yeah. like, yeah, I wore a swastika band, but you know what? Now I'm switching around. I'm writing good songs. So good for you. Good for you. That's what... The life lessons. Like, we did stupid shit when we were kids. You know how you make up for it? Do the opposite. Don't be an asshole anymore. Show that you've learned from it. Yeah. Show that's that you've learned idea. from it. Oh, that's good. Wow. It's a good story. I need to go I listen to more so Susie's I know. And Great. now I'm, this is like my- More vinyls for me to fucking look for the next time we go to a record. Susie and the Banshees has now replaced Typo Negative in my, like, obsession with them. Yeah, but you know Nothing what? can ever replace Typo Negative, but- I mean, nobody's Peter Steele. Nobody's Peter Steele. I mean, she doesn't need Coco Krispies, <laughs> but- She is the- body of rice <laughs> yeah but she is spellbound and that's a great fucking song i can't like come up with a good thing the way i have with peter Steele. yeah because i can't do a, a Susie and the banshees impression but i could certainly do a peter Steele impression <laughs> take from that what you know you what will. that's fine peter Steele is in a impression box of his own oh it's fine you need to just go dress in black do some sweet fucking eye makeup go out Make fun of the kids at Goth Night trying to fuck. <laughs> Fucking posers. Fucking. Oh my god, can we just do that? Fucking posers. I thought you. Posers. I thought posers. you wanted to put face paint on and be Euronymous and dead. Oh my god, time. well, we can do that. We can do all of it in one night. <laughs> just keep going into the bathroom and coming out as a different no, goth. Euronymous as <laughs> Susie from Susie and the Banshees. <laughs> That's what I'm doing next goth night. Oh, that's great. Right? Euronymous as Susie. <laughs> People will be like, this isn't a Comic-Con. I'm like, go eat a dick. <laughs> it is to me. Uh, I'm going to do what I want. Leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> Boom. That's it. And I think that is exactly where I'm going to end it on for this week. All righty. Thank you all for listening. We appreciate you and love you. And I hope you love this episode because I had a lovely time learning. Yeah, same, same. Hope you guys always have a lovely time learning about things. Mm -hmm. And if you do, and you want to tell us how much you love learning things, maybe you leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Because we deserve it. We deserve it. We would love one. That'd be great. Tell your friends who have an iTunes, like, hey, can you leave a review for me? That'd be great. Thanks. (laughs) And then after you do that, you should follow us on the social medias, because we got Twitter at RockCandyPod, and we got Instagram and Facebook at RockCandyPodcast. And of course, the website. It's www.rockcandypodcast.com. I feel like I've said this enough. You should know. But maybe this is the first time you're listening. (laughs) And if it is, go visit our website. You can leave comments or maybe throw us an email. We will talk to you. Yeah. Because, you know, that's just who we are. We're nice. We're we're millennials who are on social media. Yeah. We are technically... not a fucking millennial. No, we are technically aging millennials. That makes it even worse. Fucking right? Aging millennials? No, I'm not a fucking millennial. Fuck that. Hey, you know what? I was born in 19 goddamn 83. I'm not a millennial. I was born in goddamn 1984. (laughs) Body Christ. (laughs) All right. Jesus. So tune in next week because we have a really random one next week, but it's it's still fun. We're, you know what? Still fun. Crazy stories from music and all that good shit. It's so random. I forgot what it is. It's okay. I'll tell you later. No spoilers. <laughs> Hashtag no spoilers ever. <laughs> Man. All right. Well, thank you guys again for listening. 
We'll check you guys next week. And until then, party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. Party on, you crazy kids out there.